2 Samuel 4, 4, and in 2 Samuel chapter 9, verses 1 through 13. Jonathan, the son of Saul, had a son who was crippled in his feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel, and his nurse took him up and fled. And as she fled in her haste, he fell and became lame. And his name was Mephibosheth. And David said, Is there still anyone left in the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of the house of Saul, whose name was Ziba, and they called him to David. And the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show him the kindness of God to him? Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. The king said to him, Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, He is in the house of Meshir, the son of Amiel, at Lodabar. Then king David sent and brought him from the house of Meshir, the son of Amiel, at Lodabar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan. And I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, What is your servant that you would show regard for a dead dog such as I? Then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belong to Saul and to all his house I have given to your master's grandson. And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce, that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth said, Your master's grandson shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had fifteen sons and twenty servants. Then Ziba said to the king, According to all that my lord the king commands his servants, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both his feet. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks be to God. Now before the kids go to children's worship, I need your help, kids. So can all the kids stand up? Uh, So on Sunday mornings, we have been uh, starting Sunday school at 9 a.m. by memorizing the books of the Bible as a congregation. So not just the kids, but the grown-ups too. And I know a lot of you think, "Ah, I'm too old to memorize the books of the Bible. A table of contents is, is good enough for me, but I disagree. One of the most important things that you can do as a Christian is to know your Bible uh, and to be able to navigate through the whole Bible. And knowing the books of the Bible is a key part of that. So I'm going to prove to you that, yes, even you can learn something in Sunday school. So if you've been coming to Sunday school for the last nine weeks, kids or grown-ups, I'd like to hear some grown-up voices too, we're going to recite our books of the Bible. We learned all the way through... Lament, no, Ezekiel today. But we're not going to go all the way to there. We're only going to go to Ruth, okay? We're going to start at Genesis and we're going to go to Ruth. Y'all ready? Here we go. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Good job, guys. Give them a hand of applause. 
if, if your little ones, uh, first grade and under, are going to children's worship, Miss Brittany can guide them there. And uh, for the rest of us who are staying here, maybe kids that are staying behind, one of you remembers something from the story of Ruth. So who, who remembers something from the story of Ruth? Anybody remember something from the story of Ruth? Rebecca, you're nodding. What's something you remember from the story of Ruth? That's right. Yes. Yeah. So R- Ruth was a poor woman. You remember the story about her gleaning, gleaning the grain behind the, the people who were picking. Son, do you remember something from the story of Ruth? Uh, I think it's a different story you're thinking of. Anybody else remember anything from the story of Ruth? It's kind of a misnomer. The book is called Ruth, but it's really about a different woman, a woman named, named Naomi. We studied this back in Advent of 2017, if you were around then. Naomi lost everything. Her husband died, her two adult sons died, leaving no heir, no one to care for her. And in the ancient Near East, the Iron Age, that was as good as a death sentence for an older woman. She had no one to care for her. But in the midst of Naomi's loss, her daughter-in-law named Ruth stepped in and did something amazing. Rather than leaving this old woman in the dust and going and finding a new husband, Ruth committed to care for Naomi, to stay with her mother-in-law. Ruth showed her remarkable love. And the Hebrew word for love that is echoed time and time again in that book is the Hebrew word chesed. And that same word for love is used in our text today by David, who just so happens to be Ruth's grandson. Chesed seems to be a family trait. Look with me at chapter 9, 2 Samuel going to read verses 1 through 8, and I'll point out along the way the number of times this word gets brought up. And David said, is there still anyone left in the house of Saul that I may show him chesed, kindness, for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba, and they called him to David, and the king said to him, are you Ziba? And he said, I'm your servant. And the king said, is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the chesed, the kindness of God to him? Ziba said to the king, there is still a son of Jonathan. He's crippled in his feet. The king said to him, where is he? And Ziba said to the king, he's in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel at Lodavar. Then King David sent and brought him from the house of Machir, the son of Amiel at Lodavar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, behold, I'm your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you chesed, kindness, for the sake of your father, Jonathan, and I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said to him, What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Ruth loved Naomi when it would gain her nothing in return. She committed to care for a widow when that widow could not reciprocate, could not pay her back. And in the same way, David commits himself to the crippled grandson of his greatest enemy. When Mephibosheth could in no way reciprocate, could in no way pay him back. What is chesed? This remarkable love that Ruth showed to Naomi and that David showed to Mephibosheth. If you'd like to take notes here in the back of your worship guide, there's some space. Here's the first blank. In that outline, chesed 
is being present with people. It's being present with people in a persistent and generous way like you might with family. Chesed is being present with people in a persistent and generous way like you might be with family. When you think back on your life, who are the people who have been most present with you? You've spent the most face time with. You've been the most emotionally present with. Who are those people but family? Chesed is like a good parent's love. A good parent is present with their children. And that presence is not only persistent, it is generous. A good parent is generous of spirit, generous with love, generous with meaningful care. Chesed is familial love that is shown to people who are not necessarily family. Ruth loved Naomi that way, even though there wasn't a blood relation. David loved Mephibosheth that way, even though there wasn't a blood relation. And God loves you that way. Here's your next blank. In David's chesed toward Mephibosheth, we see a beautiful picture of God's covenant love for us. In the way that Ruth loved Naomi, in the way that David loved Mephibosheth, we see a picture of God's covenant love for us. Now, what exactly is going on in this text? Why is David giving back all of Saul's land and goods and status to the grandson of his deceased enemy? Well, believe it or not, it goes all the way back to the story of David and Goliath. Kids, there's a lot of people on vacation this week, so we got like two kids. So I'll, I'll let a, a grown-up. Who remembers the story of David and Goliath? Anybody? Isaac, awesome. So tell us, tell, tell the, stand up, turn around, tell, tell the congregation the story of David and Goliath. That's right. That's right. Good, good detail there at the end, Isaac. Do you remember that David chopped off Goliath's head? So, so Goliath was a lot bigger than David, wasn't he? How could somebody small beat somebody big like that? Was there somebody even bigger on David's side? That's right. Jesus was on his side. God was on his side. That's, that's very, very right. While all that was happening, while the, the stones were flying and the heads are getting chopped off, King Saul wasn't David's enemy yet, was watching and listening. And next to Saul all this time was his son, Jonathan, also watching and listening. And when Jonathan saw David's faith, and and when Jonathan heard the things that David said, Jonathan realized that he and David were two peas in a pod. They were cut from the same cloth. They were going to be dear friends. Let's see it in 1 Samuel chapter 18. Look in your worship guide. As soon as David had finished speaking to Saul right after the defeat of Goliath, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took David that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. David and Jonathan were best friends. They were companions on the battlefield of the kingdom. In truth, they were brothers. Saul brought David into his own home and treated David like a son. And in the context of that friendship, David and Jonathan made a covenant promise to each other. But what was that covenant about? What was the promise that these two men made? 
Let's jump forward a few chapters in this story to see. Look in your worship guide. May Yahweh be with you as he has been with my father, says Jonathan speaking. If I am still alive, show me the steadfast love, chesed of Yahweh, that I may not die. And do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever, when Yahweh cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. And Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, May Yahweh take vengeance on David's enemies. Then Jonathan said to David, Go in peace, because we have sworn both of us in the name of Yahweh, saying, Yahweh shall be between me and you, and between my offspring and your offspring forever. David and Jonathan made a promise. That whatever happened to David and whatever happened to Jonathan in the wars of their people, whichever one of them lived, would watch out for the other one's offspring. This is, we, we've all seen Band of Brothers. We've seen World War II movies. This is two soldiers on the battlefield about to make, they're making a pact that they're going to care for one another's family if, if anything happens to them. And Jonathan died on the battlefield. So for David, the war is now over. Israel has found some peace. The Ark of the Covenant has been moved to Jerusalem. David feels like he's kept his responsibility to God. But there's another promise to attend to now. The promise to Jonathan. Because David made a promise to Jonathan. He's going to treat his son like family. Here's your next blank in your worship guide. The love of Ruth, David, and God are all rooted in a covenant promise. All of this love, this chesed, it's, a, it's rooted in a covenant promise. Hesed is covenant love. Hesed persists because of a promise made and a promise kept. Hesed is being present with people in a persistent and generous way like you would with family. But it persists not because of blood, not because we have to, not because we're natural biological family, but because of a promise that we make. So your mama, your mama loves you because she's your mama. She's going to love you even when you're acting a fool, right? She. She's your mom. She can't help herself. But chesed love, covenant love, is different. It's choosing to love a person like family because of a promise. Honestly, this is the one, of things, uh, one of the things that makes marriage and the marital relationship different from bearing children. This is why public marriage vows need to be taken. Because it's a relationship in which we obligate ourselves with a promise. I can't help but love my kids. They're connected to me in a way that nobody else is. But I chose to love Megan. I found her. I loved her. And I chose her. And I committed. I promised to love Megan. Ruth made a promise to Naomi. Therefore, she loved. David made a promise to Jonathan. Therefore, he loved. I made a promise to Megan. Therefore, I love. It's because of a promise. And in this love, love that David shows Mephibosheth, we see God's love for you. God's love that's rooted in a promise. Here's your next three blanks. God loves you first, even though you were once his enemy. God loves you even though you were once his enemy. God loves you despite your brokenness. You're, you were an enemy and you're broken, but he loves you despite your brokenness. And third, God loves you because of a promise he made to the royal son. He loves you because of a promise that he has made to the royal son, Jesus. So when you read this text and you say, who am I in this text? Who should I affiliate myself with? The first person should be Mephibosheth. You are Mephibosheth. And who is this guy? Hold your finger there. We'll go back to chapter 4 and look at his, 
his origin story in chapter 4. 2 Samuel 4, 4 says, Jonathan, the son of Saul, had a son who was crippled in his feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel. And his nurse took him up and fled. And as she fled in her haste, he fell and became lame. And his name was Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth's father dies when he's five years old. His knowledge of his father was probably that he was gone a lot. He was out in war. He loses his father. And then the nation that was built around his grandfather's kingdom goes to this other guy. So he finds home to live in. And he lives in hiding for his childhood. So with that in context, let's move forward to chapter 9, verse 6. Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Don't fear. Don't fear. Why, why would he fear? In any other context, in the history of kingdoms and kings, what's about to happen? David's got peace now. His enemies are defeated. He's just tying up loose strings at this point. We got a, we got a descendant of Saul left. Bring him on in here. We're going to cut his head off, and I'll know that no one's going to be a threat to my throne. That's what Mephibosheth is probably expecting. He's a a disabled man. There's no way he can run from the king of all people. So when he calls, I guess I better go. But David says, don't fear. Do not fear. Let's continue, verse 7. David said to him, do not fear, for I will show you kindness, chesed, for the sake of your father, Jonathan. And I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, what is your servant? that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I. It's not inappropriate to feel bad or even embarrassed for Mephibosheth in this story. He's a crippled man. He can't walk. There's no way he's going to flee from David. And so Mephibosheth, when he falls on his face before David, we have a very weak and broken man. But despite that, he's the grandson of David's greatest enemy, And rather than killing him, David says, do not fear, for I will show you chesed, persistent covenant love because of a promise I made to your father, a promise that you didn't even know. And I'm going to restore to you all the land of Saul, your grandfather, and you'll eat at my table always. I'll treat you as a son like Saul once treated me. It's unbelievable. It's unthinkable. Kings don't do this. And so Mephibosheth says, what is your servant? That you would show favor, regard for a dead dog such as I. As a disabled man who is also David's enemy from a political perspective, this doesn't make sense to Mephibosheth. David's kindness makes no sense at all. Just like God's love for you and me makes no sense at all on face value. We were his enemies. Apart from Christ, our family, our lineage, humankind, we were traitors. We're rebels. We are idolaters in the way of Saul. We are the family of Adam and Cain and Korah and Esau. And we all feel the effects of being in that lineage. We are broken people because of our sin. Our bodies, our hearts, our families, our communities, our souls are wrecked. Everywhere we look, we see brokenness that we have wrought, that we have brought upon ourselves. Even the richest and most powerful among us, like Saul, are unhappy 
depressed, alone, broken. Why would God love us, dead dogs though we are? Why not leave us with our sin and with the effects of our sin? God would have been just to leave us with our just deserts. He didn't leave because of a promise. A promise that he had made to the royal son. And what was that promise? Here's your next blank. Because the royal son died the death of a traitor, father grants us the son's position and inheritance in God's family. Because the royal son died the death of a traitor, the father grants us the son's position and inheritance in God's family. Jonathan died on the battlefield as though he was actually an opponent of David and of God, but he wasn't. Jonathan was more faithful to anybody in Saul's family. So also Jesus perished on the cross like a traitor. Jesus died the death deserved by traitors, rebels, and idolaters like us, even though Jesus was none of those things. And because Jesus died on the cross, because he died as a substitute for sinners, God's covenant love is extended to you. If you trust Christ... God the Father loves you as he loves his own son. If you trust Christ, the Father loves you in the same way that he loves Jesus. Look at verse 13 in chapter 9. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both his feet. Mephibosheth, a broken man, lives his life in royal abundance. He's treated like a son of the king because of a promise that the king had made. Do you realize that's how God feels about you? He sees your brokenness. He sees your sin. But if you believe in Christ, he forgives you. And he's given you a new identity, a new family. You're no longer an enemy of God if you trust in him. You are his son. Even if you're a woman, God sees you as his son. And here's why that's important theologically. Jesus was the firstborn son of God. He's our older brother. But in giving his position and his identity over to us, we become inheritors of all the blessings that Jesus deserved. In Christ, we are the firstborn sons who inherit all the blessings of God's family. Why does God receive us? Why does God give us an eternity of hope? Because of the righteousness of Christ. Because of what Jesus has done, we receive what he deserved. Because on the cross, he received what we deserve. Before we pivot to a second point, I want to ask you this. How do you view yourself? What do you think of yourself? What's your self-talk like? I know a lot of Christians who refer to themselves a lot like Mephibosheth does. I'm just a dead dog. What do you expect from yourself? A lot of us view ourselves as these ultimately broken, messed up people who can never seem to get things right, people who can never grow, who can't heal. We're just destined to be trapped in sin and failure and everything miserable. We're nothing but a a dead dog. But the gospel says that's not true of you anymore. You who believe in Jesus are a new creation, and your core identity is now son of God. The triune God loves you, listens to you, and has great plans for you. Yes, you still have some great brokenness. Mephibosheth is still lame at the end of this chapter. But God intends to do great things in 
and through you. So can you find rest, hope, and peace, not in what you've done, but in what Christ has accomplished for you, your new identity? Who are you? To answer that question, you need only to look to Christ. You're not an enemy anymore. You're being healed. You're a son of God, loved and pleasing to him because of the work of Christ. So find rest in that. Beyond that, one interesting aspect of this text is that David isn't, in fact, God. David's a follower of Yahweh, just like you are. In fact, David was loved by God for the same reason that you are. Jesus died on the cross for David. He had sins just like you do. So in David, we see someone not unlike us. So there's a second lesson to be learned from this text. God loves you with covenant love so that you would go and do likewise. As God loved David, then David loved Mephibosheth. As God loved Ruth, so she loved Naomi. In the same way, God loves you with covenant love so that you would go and do likewise. What does that look like? Here's your next blank. We should imitate God's covenant love in the covenantal relationships that we already have. So in the covenantal relationships that we already have, we should be imitating God's covenant love. David made a promise to Jonathan. That promise meant obligations. He gave his word that he would care for Jonathan's descendants. So he loved Mephibosheth because of a promise made. God loved David. He blessed David. So God took from those blessings that God had given him, and he gave of them to Mephibosheth. So the question you've got to answer is, who have you made promises to? To whom have you obligated yourself in a covenant relationship? Who are the people whom God expects you to take the love and blessings he's given you and to pass it on? I'll tell you who a lot of those folks are. It's the people you've already covenanted with. For example, here's your next blank. You have a covenant obligation to love your spouse in this way. If you're married. If you're married, you have a covenant obligation to love your spouse in this way with chesed. If you made a promise to that person to be one with that person, you can't simply walk away because it gets hard. In fact, even in the case of adultery, Jesus says you can get a divorce, but it's not required. It's not commanded. Our spouses are the people for whom we should be the most willing to give of ourselves sacrificially, to be present, to be generous, to be persistent in our relationship with them. And not because they deserve it. Because they don't. (laughs) They don't deserve it. They're sinners just like you are. But we love them presently and persistently because God loves us when we were undeserving of his love. God loves you with covenant love so that you would go and do likewise. Now, maybe your marriage feels loveless, difficult, and impossible. How could you love that person? You can't do it on your own. Here's your next blank. When you find the covenant love of God more satisfying than any other love, then you'll be in the right space to love your spouse with chesed. When you find the love of Christ to be more satisfying than any other love, then you'll be in the right space to love your your spouse with chesed. Your relationship with Christ, your experience of love from him is the most important factor in your marriage. And quite frankly, 
you might really like your spouse. Loving them, I hope, feels easy and free and fun. But if you aren't finding the covenant love of God more satisfying than your spouse's love, then I can promise you your marriage is headed in the wrong way. You've made your spouse into an idol. So until you find the covenant love of Jesus, the most satisfying love you have, you're not going to be in the right space to love your spouse or any of these other people we're going to talk about. God loves you with covenant love first so that you would go and do likewise. So as you revel in his love, he gives you the capacity to love sacrificially, the capacity to love persistently with your presence and generosity to your spouse. But it's not just your spouse to whom you have this covenantal obligation. No, here's your next blank. You have a covenant obligation to love your children in this way as well. And you might think, wait, I didn't make any promises, though, kids. <laughs> I made a public covenant vow to their, to their mom or to their dad, but I didn't make a promise to them. I hate to break it to you, but the public vow you make to your spouse also applies to your kids. They get kind of grandfathered into the union because they're a product of that union. But besides that, for those of you who had children who were baptized as infants, you made a promise to God concerning those children. In congregation, we'll get to the second, you made a promise to them as well to care for them and to rear them as followers of Christ. And I, I doubt I really have to sell you on this imperative to love your kids. But I'll note that chesed is a remarkably powerful kind of love. It's about presence. It's about persistence and generosity. Those are important to kids. So whether you're a parent or a grandparent, if you have covenant obligations to these little ones, really all they want is you. They just want your presence. They want you to be with them, to listen to them, to talk to them. You don't have to impress them. I mean, they like gifts and all that, but they really just want you to be present with them. They want time with you, so give them that love, that chesed, as God has given it to you. Again, you're not going to be in a space to love your kids well until you find the love of Christ most satisfying. But as you're reveling in his love, give yourself over to your children. Let's go on to the next group. It's your next blank. You have a covenant obligation to love other Christians in this way, especially the ones in your local church. You have a covenant obligation to other Christians in this way, especially the ones in your local church. These are the big three. These are the three groups of people whom you are most responsible to love. Your spouse, your children, and other Christians, especially the ones in your local church. Again, you're not going to love these people well until you're resting and finding yourself most satisfied in the love of Christ. And I know this is going to sound crass, but besides these three groups of people, everybody else takes second shrift. Why? Because you have made a covenant obligation to these people, and you don't have a covenant obligation to everybody else. And if you're going to give of yourself with your presence persistently, if you're going to give of yourself generously to other people, that may be all you can give. You may give yourself to your spouse, to your children, and a handful of Christians in this church, and you might be totally tapped out. Why? Because chesed is costly. To love people in this way is to give and give and give of yourself. When you may get nothing in return, it hurts to love people in this way. Here's your next five blanks in your worship guide. I think it's actually four. Next four blanks in your worship guide. These are the questions you should be asking about these three, three groups of people. Your spouse, your kids, and the people here in this church. Are you loving these people, first of all, with your presence? 
Not gifts, presents with a C. (laughs) Are you loving them with your presence? Are you just spending time with them face-to-face? Are you calling them on the phone? Are you connected with your spouse, with your children, and with these folks with your presence? Secondly, are you loving these people with generosity? Generosity. Third, are you loving these people with forgiveness and inclusion? You're not really friends with somebody until you've sinned against each other and forgiven each other and reunited. So are you loving each other with forgiveness and inclusion? Yes, even your spouse. Yes, even your kids. And are you loving these people unconditionally? Unconditionally. I've made a promise, and God has loved me even when I've let him down. So I'm going to love them and pursue them and forgive them with no conditions, no strings attached. Are you loving these people, here's the fifth one, like family? If you're aiming to love your spouse in this way, if you're aiming to love your children in this way, and if you're aiming to love the Christians in your local church like this, you might get tapped out. You may have no more to give, and that's okay. But I know you guys. Many of you have such big hearts and have such a big vision, and you want to give of yourself to the whole world, but you can't. You're not Jesus. To try to do that, to give yourself in this way to everyone you know would kill you. You have to limit yourself. I'm the same way. It's funny. Y'all have heard my household vision before. I've said it a thousand times. My hope is that every household in St. Tammany Parish would hear the gospel in a clear and compelling way. Even that vision is probably too big. But it's self-limiting. I really want every household in Louisiana and the United States and the world to hear the gospel in a clear and compelling way because I want the kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven. But it's just not realistic. I can't do that, and God hasn't called me to do that. But do you know who God has called me to? Without a shadow of a doubt, I know he's called me to Megan and to JJ and to Audrey and Liam across the way and to you. I know beyond a shadow of a doubt, God has called me to love these few people. So whom has God called you to love recklessly in a way that is gracious and overabundant, so overabundant that you might be taken advantage of? Who are those people? It's your spouse. It's your kids. It's the other Christians in this church. You made promises to these people when you joined this church. Wasn't that a little insular? I mean... What about the world? What about unbelievers? What about the poor? Here's your last blank. As the Spirit directs us, we should imitate God's covenant love toward anyone willing to engage with us in meaningful covenant relationships. As the Spirit directs us, we should imitate God's covenant love toward anyone willing to engage with us in meaningful covenant relationships. It's all about relationships like David had with Mephibosheth. Listen, we live in a world where compassion, empathy, meeting felt needs are meritorious works. By being kind to people you don't know, you justify your existence and make yourself worthy of love by being kind to other people with no strings attached. So even unbelievers will tell you, care for the poor, care for the refugee, care for the sinner, care for the rejected. But where Jesus is different, where David is different, is they say, no, no, no. That's just grace, and grace is fine. Show grace recklessly to people, but chesed is something more. Chesed is an invitation to relationship. You can't make yourself present to everyone. You can't be generous to every needy person on the planet. You can't forgive and include everybody that you meet because you are limited. 
You can't love everyone unconditionally or like family. And how does God love you? He's the one we're imitating. To be in relationship with God, you have to trust Jesus. You have to make covenant with him. He is your Lord now. You are submitting to him. So you've already made covenants with your spouse and your kids and other Christians. You're stuck with them. God calls you to love them with chesed, with persistent presence and generosity. And while there's nothing wrong with meeting other people's needs, caring for the poor, showing empathy, all these sorts of things, to show the love of God to others is to invite others into a deep, committed relationship with you. Let me give you two examples and I'll wrap up. One day, I had a, a homeless guy in downtown Memphis ask me for some money to, to, for food. And I said, I, I'm not going to give you money, but what I will do is I'll have lunch with you. And so we went to Subway, and we sat down, and we had a sandwich together for about 30 minutes. It was really cool that the guy agreed, and, and, and that was a step above, right, to sit down with this guy. But what if, I'm not actually the good example in this story, what if I'd then given him my number, and I said, you know what, I enjoyed this. And I want to have lunch again with you next Tuesday at this same time. Come on and meet me again. Let's have a sandwich. I want to get to know you better. That's what Jesus does. Yes, he feeds the 5,000. He shows grace to a lot of people. But then he would call a few into relationship with him. That's how God loves. And that's how he calls us to love. One of my best friends in town, while he goes to church occasionally, if you knew him closely and personally, he would tell you that he's not a Christian. There are some key elements of the gospel that he simply disagrees with. But you know what's amazing about our friendship? We show up for each other. We've had some really hard conversations about faith, about the world, about what's true. We've disagreed with each other vehemently. But I also know that if I needed anything, he would be there for me, and I'd do the same thing for him. We need more of these committed, meaningful relationships because this is one of the primary ways that God's love spreads. We give and we give and we give, not because someone deserves it, but because God has loved us. We heap grace upon grace upon grace because Christ deserves it, because of what he has accomplished. But what do we get out of this self-giving? What did David get out of his self-giving? He got another member of his family. And God got glory, and that should be enough. As God has offered us chesed, we should be willing to offer that same love to the people around us who might be willing to take it. But you'll notice I said, as the Spirit leads you, we are to keep our eyes and our ears open praying as we spend time with the people around us and asking, God, who do you want me to invite into a deep relationship? Who do you want me to give myself over to? Because I can't give myself over to everyone. But think about this. What would it be like to have those deep, meaningful friendships with believing friends, but even unbelieving friends, neighbors, co-workers. Think about this. What would your home be like if it wasn't the place where you retreat to get away from the world at the end of every day, but instead if you transformed your home into a place where you develop these deep kinds of relationships with your spouse, with your children, with the other Christians in this church, and with a handful of other folks, where you aim to be present with them, generous of spirit, generous with your gifts, forgiving and inclusive, treating them like family, what would your home be like? What would your life be like? 
In fact, what would this church be like if all of our homes were like that? Can you imagine how much weirder and more awesome this church would be if we were all living and loving like this? And imagine the collateral impact that would have on your neighborhood, on your workplace, and on our town. It would be this weird kingdom movement where people were spending time investing in each other and in relationships more than they were investing in anything else. That's something I want. That's something that's really very attractive to me. Do you want it? We can have it. God has loved us with covenant love so that we would go and do likewise. Imagine what that would look like and chase after it, brothers and sisters. Let's pray. Holy God, we're humbled by the love that you have for us. A love like David had for Mephibosheth. We don't deserve your love left into ourselves. We're rebels and completely undeserving. We're broken people. And yet you, because of the work of Christ, have loved us with an unending love. Help us, Lord, to revel in that love. To find your love more satisfying than anything else, than any other love, than any other desire of our heart. Lord, as we rest in the love of Christ, help us then to love our spouses that way, our children, the other Christians in this church, and the handful of other folks that you call us to. Holy Spirit, give us eyes to see the people in our lives that need our love, with whom we have the the margin to to share ourselves, to give our lives over to them. Give us wisdom and patience and grace as we give of ourselves unconditionally, whether we receive anything in return. Father, make us more like Jesus. Make us more like David in this sense. Start, uh, Lord, we pray a movement of your kingdom in our homes and in this church that looks like your love. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.